Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year, Roger. Happy New Year, Lee. That <laughs> <laughs> seems so long ago now. I know, I know. It's only once every 12 months we get to say that, though. True. So, th- th- <laughs> this is uh, More Games Than Time, where we'll talk about games. And uh, th- th- this month we also uh, have, an- have an interview with uh, a-, a-, a sort of designer who doesn't, doesn't get much attention, the, the game developer. The-, the widely misunderstood, poorly understood, not misunderstood, the poorly understood role in game development of board game industry. So we, we talked with uh, Nicholas Lundstrumper Tracker and asked, what does the developer do? Uh, but before then, what, what have we been playing recently? So first, uh, it's a game I don't actually own a physical copy of, though I'd like to, uh, is Lemminger, which is a 2014 release and from Sebastian Bleasdale. Anything to do with lemmings? Well, yes. <laughs> Ish. <laughs> this is my point of reference going into this. I know nothing about it at all. Well, they, they don't plumb it off anything because there aren't any film crews involved. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's basically a racing game. Uh, right, Sebastian, okay. of course, much better known for Keyflower, that series, mm-hmm. on the underground. Uh, the latter I haven't even played. But this is actually quite a quick, simple game. I think it's advertised for 8+. plus. Um, right, okay. You've, you've got a hex map, start line, finish line. Uh, there are mm-hmm. five terrain types on the map, plus clear terrain that you can always move into. Uh, cards for each right. terrain valued zero to four. And e- mm-hmm. each terrain type has a card stack. So it starts with just a two, and then as you, as you play, you add to the stack. If you play a right. higher card than what's on the top of the stack, then you just get that card's value. Okay. And that, that's how many points you, uh, spaces you have to move one of your lemmings. Uh, okay, and this is a it's a fixed board, is it? Not a tile layer. Uh, well, mostly fixed. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I think there are two or three courses in in the standard box. Um, okay. If you play that higher card, though, uh, there's a stack of three mm-hmm. tiles of that terrain type, and you put one of them down somewhere on the map. Okay, so that could be either to help yourself or hinder your opponents, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, for example, to, to make a hole through a bit of terrain. Um, so you can move through it with that card or, mm-hmm. as you say, to mess up somebody else. Once you've run out of those three, there's a stack of, I think, five clear terrain tiles, which don't hinder mm-hmm. your opponent, but can still help you. Um, if you play a lower card or equal value, you don't get to put down a tile, but you get the sum of all the cards in the stack as movement points. Right, okay. Uh, and I've seen, you know, ten point moves. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting twist to it, uh, especially for something that's aimed at a younger age group, I suppose. Yeah. You you only get to move one of your lemmings, you can't show the points between them, uh, mm-hmm. You and you win when your second lemming crosses the finish line. Right, okay. So, I mean, it's quite a simple rule set, but there's mm. really quite surprising subtlety in the gameplay, um, mm. particularly because you can push other lemmings around the map. Right, okay. In- including your own. So it really is... It really is drawing on the old Lemmings PC games, then. Um, well, not maybe. I mean, the, the... I'm just thinking in terms of you know, sort of you know, you've got your chain of Lemmings, and you can put, tell one to stay there and push the others around, and a little bit. I mean, there's nothing that's fatal to them. Um, <laughs> some somebody, I, I haven't actually played uh, El Dorado, but somebody said it was quite mm-hmm. like that in that you have to have the right the right cards to get onto the right sort of terrain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the uh the deck building Rainer Knizia race game. Yeah. 
Um, Which I've never played. <laughs> neither have I, so I don't, I don't know how valid that is. But, um, yeah, one, one drawback, it's not significantly sellable. Um, the, the interaction is basically the important part of the game, and I don't think anybody's mm. written a bot for it. It, it would be quite complicated. Sure. Uh, I think that's, you know, often a difficulty with racing games. But I've, I've been playing it on, uh, yukata.de where, um, mm-hmm. the, the designer has, has just approved a bunch of extra courses and rules mods. So what, what, right, okay. what you get there is the most comprehensive version that currently exists. Right. Uh, I haven't played anything on yukata. Is that sort of more akin to board game arena where it takes care of certain things for you is it it's the same tabletopia end of things it's the same general style i mean unlike something like tabletop simulator where you've basically just got a physics engine it's very much you are playing a Mm. specific game and it will not let you make an illegal move it'll just tell you that doesn't work do something else okay um it's a a lot easier (laughs) unlike board game arena it's very focused on turn-based games you don't have any Mm -hmm. um move timeouts or anything like that so right. mo- mostly people play, you know, over, over several days. Mm-hmm. And yeah, un- unfortunately, it seems to be quite hard to find. I only discovered it recently when, when the uh, Yukata update happened. Uh, it looks right. as if it didn't have a lot of copies printed when it came out. There, there was a, a German championship some years ago where they apparently took it very seriously <laughs> indeed, which that, that, that to me is the German sense of humor. You know, take a game for kids and, and treat yeah. it as if it were chess. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it, it, I've seen occasional second-hand copies for really quite serious money. Um, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll probably make my own print-and-play version at some point because I do want to play this in person as well as online. Uh, right. yeah, obviously, I can 3D print the lemmings. The only difficult bit is, is printing the cards. Sure. So that, that's going to happen. And yeah, it's, it's one of those really quite simple rule set, mm. but offering a bit of depth to. Good, good depth to weight ratio. And emergent tactical complexity that, yeah, re- really mm. gets very subtle indeed. Okay, so you've obviously been having a bit of fun with this. Yeah, I've, I've played, I don't know, 10 or 15 games, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. That's a decent amount. Lost most of them. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, for really not a thing I expected to take at all seriously. It's turned out to be really great fun. One of my big surprises of the end of the year. That sounds like a terrific surprise. That's the best way around to have it, I think. Far rather that than the opposite of hyping something up in your own head and then it falls flat. Yeah, I'd never even heard of this one before, so... No. Oh, good. So now you can contribute to hyping it up for other people. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and drive up the price <laughs> in the second-hand market so I still can't find one. That's it. <laughs> good plan, Roger. <laughs> Tell everyone it's terrible. <laughs> okay, well, in terms of um, sort of light games I suppose um, I've been playing a few games of Small Islands in December is this one that you've heard of or not? The name is not familiar to me No, so I think this has been rather overlooked and I'm not entirely certain why um, I remember playing it when it launched at UKGE in 2018 I think it was mm-hmm. so it's been around for a good 18 months or so um, it's got very high production values, it's very bright and colourful, and there's been a lot of love poured into it from that side, but it just seems to have, it was released straight to retail, and I think it didn't get the initial momentum that it needed, and it's just disappeared from view. Mm. So, publishers of um, Mushroom Games, whom I don't know, so it may just be they don't have good access. It could be, it could be. Um, so basically, it's a, it's a tile-laying game, 
Um, it's for one to four players. Um, unlike most of these small tile laying games, um, the solo game is actually against an, an automa that's included in the box. It's not a beat your own score affair. Mm-hmm. Um, and that automa comes with six different levels. Okay. So, I mean, this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't understand really why, as say, it hasn't garnered a lot of attention. I think it's really disappeared beneath the radar. Well, um, there are so many games, I suppose, some of them are banned. Well, there's, there are so many, yeah, absolutely. As I say, you know, the, the production values are great, the art's good, the, it's offering something that a lot of people want on solo games. Um, I'm not sure, I played it once um, as a multiplayer game, which was back in UKG when it launched. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was a long time ago, and I don't know how that really reflects as to how it works as a multiplayer game. I, I know from my, um, my logged plays that I won. <laughs> I also remember asking the the demonstrator on the stand about the solo rules, and she said, "I don't know." Then went away to ask somebody, and came back and said, "Yes, it does have solo rules." And looked at me with a really strange look and went, "You play games on your own?" And that, that was all she could tell me about them. Uh, but I think that's a reflection on the demonstrator rather than the game. Um, so basically, you've got. Um, it plays over a series of four rounds. There's a stack of tiles you're you're drawing out and adding. You're building up the area um, between you. You don't have individual areas. Mm-hmm. And um, as the title suggests, you're building up ostensibly small islands, um, although some of them might be larger. Uh, there's one card in the game that will score you for an, an island of 12 tiles. So there's some, you know, it's, it's never going to play out exactly the same way once. Twice, I should say. So... Um, Looking at the each, pictures, you've basically got land and sea, and presumably you have to match up coastlines and so on, so that they don't. You do, yeah, yeah you do. Um, and at the beginning of each round, um, you draw a, a scoring goal card, which is what you're aiming for on that particular round. Um, and this could be your goal is to have your your score points for islands of a certain size, or it could be that your score points for an island that has more of one um, resource type, for want of a better word, than another. Um, so from memory, I think there's three resources or icons in the game. Um, there's a lotus flower and a leaf and something else I forget. Mm. Um, and then there are also temples and there are anchors. Um, so you're, you're, you're scoring in a different way every round. Um, you've got different goals to aim for that you're drawing and, uh, to, to actually score, what you then have to do is place one of your temples on that island on a, a special temple slot. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might choose to... You've got eight of these temples to spend over the course of the the game. So you could pace yourself and do two per round, or you could say, that look, this looks like a really good scoring opportunity I've created and score more than one or more than two in a round or fewer. Um you are because you are limited. You can only score an island once for yourself. So, it you've got that sort of decision to make of is this the best round to score this, or might I get a better goal scoring card at another round further down the line? Which is an interesting choice to to weigh so up. So, presumed if if you give up that opportunity, you're not going to be able to score that goal later because that card's gone. So the goals they weigh the work at the start of each round. You draw three goal cards. Mm-hmm. Um. You choose one that you're going to play in that round. That's what you're aiming for. You discard another, um, which goes back to the draw pile. And the subsequent round, you'll shuffle them together. So you might draw it back again. You might not. Um, and the the third one, you keep 
and the next round you'll draw two to make up a hand of three right. to draw again. So you've got one that you could aim for further down the line, um, one that you are aiming for, and you're ne- so you've right. always got that a little bit of a plan ahead approach. Um, and if multiplayer, definitely you've got a, a thing that um, you know you, you can try and see what pe- goals people are going for and try and shut them out from doing that, which makes life a bit more interesting, frustrating. I don't know. Um, the Automa is very simple to run. Um, it's got its own deck of cards, and it will. Uh, say on on any given go so the tiles are in um, piles of three right? and on any given go it will say right I'll choose the top tile from which one of those three piles and then it will have a priority order of three places that it will place that tile which is purely directional from the last tile that you placed right. so going it's normally going clockwise and it'll be you know sort of one first choice to the right of your tile second choice below third choice to the left at the end of uh, the complete row not just the tile that you placed mm-hmm. and if it's unable to place a tile in those positions then it's just a move from the game and it scores a point straight away right um so that's very simple to run um additionally the automa will come with a, a starting score say 50 points and it will score so many points for each temple that it places through the game. And what I've found in the half dozen games that I've played is that the first two levels of AI Autumn of Opponent are very easy to beat. And the third one is a huge ramp up in difficulty that I haven't been able to beat at all. <laughs> Out of six, I think you said. Out of six, yeah. Um, so God knows what's going on in the sixth level of difficulty. Um, I find it very difficult to to stop the Autumn of scoring mm. um to which is very important on that that third level it starts off with with 50 points and scores five points for every temple that it's placing um i haven't found a way to stop it placing those temples although i have tried so it's placing out eight of them so it's scoring a minimum of 90 points right my scores are in the 70s so i'm a long way off beating that um, whereas before, as I say, sort of levels one and two, I was beating it fairly easily. So it's not actively blocking you, but it will often play things that will impair, presumably, your ability to do what you want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, so one thing about it, t- taking it, its placements off of where you've just placed the tile means that the most likely place it's going to place is next to the tile and therefore next to the island that you're building up. Mm. Um, and it will, another little sort of rule in it is that it will never play a card that would add anything to an island that it's already scored. Right. Um, because, you know, exactly the same as the human player. Once you've placed that, once it's placed a temple on an island, it, it can't score it a second time. Sure. Um, so it, it can, it's, it's, it's really simple, but it quite often puts the tile exactly where you don't want it to go. If you're, which, which, which mean, again, is what that's you want a, from, yeah, you know, a, a simple opponent. Well, absolutely. Yeah, and as I say, that sort of thing of, um, yeah, let's say, well, I'm trying to stop it blocking temples. Um, it will normally place a temple on an island where there's at least two of any one resource type. So I'll be desperately trying not to put out a second one of that resource type on there. And of course, it goes and does it anyway. And in doing that, presumably, it stops you from, or well, impedes you from, from scoring. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, I've, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a very bright, colourful, cheerful game, as I say. Um, it's very, it's well produced. It's easy to handle the AIs. Um, but it's very frustrating at those, <laughs> those AI levels. Um, so, uh, 
yeah, that's uh, that's small islands. As you say, just not not a game I've heard of at all. Uh, so no, and it, it looks as if it's you know not particularly language dependent or anything like that. So absolutely not. No, it's one of those things that goes yeah, missing. It, it, just it sank without a trace. With, with the variable uh, scoring, it sounds a little bit like uh, Isle of Sky, and that that. Yeah, as as in you, yeah, you, you're see, trying yeah, to different things the... each time. Except you, you don't yeah, have exactly. the multi-turn build-up of I know this is going to come up at the end of the game. Yeah, um, I will say that it's. I don't. You've probably had this with games as well that you can see see a game and see that it's a good game, but it's just lacking a spark. There's just something there that's missing that isn't making you want to to play it more. Hmm. Well, I I find that easy to conflate with my own. There are a whole bunch of games which are very popular, and I can see that people who mm. aren't me enjoy a lot, but they don't just just don't quite work for me for some reasons. So yeah, uh, though th- thinking of one that does another game I've been playing quite a bit again on Yukata, though, though I do now have a physical copy as a direct result of it being on Yukata, uh, is mm-hmm. Volt. Uh, right, I, uh, okay, Volt I have heard of, but I can't think much of. I'm thinking it's a dice game from memory. Not really, though dice are involved. Uh, it's Emerson Matsuuchi uh, re-implementing mm-hmm. his own earlier Vault Robot Battle Arena, which I think was a very small print run. And right. Basically, it's a cut-down version of Robo Rally with less frustration in concept. <laughs> uh, you, you have a mu- so To be fair, less frustration than Robo Rally, yeah, that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> but, it, but it's still a programming game, it's still a robot battle game. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, but you have I think something like a 7x7 grid. Right. That's, that's the play area rather than something huge. Uh, and each round you're placing uh, three orders. Uh, this, this is where the dice mm-hmm. come in. You've got uh, two red and two blue dice. Blue dice are movement, red dice are shooting. And right. you put three of them on your controllers behind your player screen. So you mm-hmm. can move, move, shoot, 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 move, whatever combination you like. Yeah. Uh, the value of the die which you just choose says how far you move. And sometimes it's relevant to the shooting as well, but that comes in with the upgrades. It, it basically, okay. everybody does that secretly. Then you resolve, uh, interleave. So everyone's first die gets resolved. Everyone's second die. And, th- and there's an order for working out exactly how, who, who goes mm-hmm. in, in what point. And, you know, you can be shot to bits. You can be pushed off the edge. There's a new goal token coming out randomly each round. One of, one of six. Uh, locations. Right. Um, the, the tiles have numbers on the back, so over an entire game it'll be even. Um, mm-hmm. You get one point for a goal, and you get one point for destroying another robot, so goals are kind of optional. <laughs> Though, yeah, they, they can, you, you can sometimes build up two or three on a square, and then obviously everybody goes for it. Um, you- it sounds like the kind of game there's somebody in my group who... Um- Certain games he will do everything completely randomly, <laughs> which he thinks is is great fun and just is hugely frustrating for everyone else. I think you could, but I think you might find yourself going off the edges a lot. I mean, there there are all the maps have envir- there are four map boards in it, and they all have environmental. Right, so that that is a that is a thing you can do. Then you can't sort of bounce off an edge. It's not that sort of arena. It depends on the map. Some, the simple one ha- ha- just has a basic. Uh, hard wall at the edge, but some pits mm-hmm. in the middle. Some of the others, uh, there's one which has uh, water around the edge, which is immediately fatal. Right. And pushing other robots off the edge is much easier than shooting them because you only have to push them off once rather than shoot them three times. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
though I'm generally you're playing to five points, so it keeps the games short. Though there are competition modes where you play, you know, one match in each of the four arenas, or mm-hmm. uh, there's a longer one where you basically have to be the winner in each arena without losing in any of them. So, you know, have, have, yeah. have however long a multi-game series you want, you can do that. Uh, the, the real meat of it is the upgrade cards, though. So, right. um, you start with two and you, you get more as the game goes on, though you can only have two active mm-hmm. ones. So it might be, you know, change the laser to a grenade where you have to specify how far you're throwing it, but okay. it damages all the surrounding squares, not just so that one. Or you can move diagonally. Is that a little, or... I've, it's been a while since I played it. Is that a little, little bit like, um, mechs versus minions? Um, a, that has got that sort of upgrade component to it, doesn't it? I think the last time I played it may have been the last time you played it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's an, an upgrade th- through the game rather than from one game to another, mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, obviously some of these are better than others. And, right, okay. There's a, there's so a bit so of it's got a sort of got a sort of a campaign structure to it then is it um call, call it mini campaign really yeah. um you you can retain upgrades from one match to another but a single mm-hmm. match is an entirely playable thing right. uh, okay. there is a solo bot included uh its mm-hmm. rules are fairly straightforward uh if you're up against one then outplaying it is easy because uh, mm. you can work out exactly what it's going to do if you're up against two or three uh it doesn't take that long to run and it gets a bit more challenging. And because they work by the standard rules of the game, you can, you can have them as opposition in multiplayer games as well. Right. Okay. And yeah, I, I still like Robo Rally. I, I will make the unpopular <laughs> assertion that I actually think the 2016 is a better game as game than the earlier one. Um, but I can play several games of this in the same time as one of Robo Rally and there'll be a lot less sitting around being frustrated because I can't do stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's definitely worth a look. Uh, that that's another one that I found on Yukata and have since bought okay. a physical copy of, <laughs> which I've got to play. Lock, lockdown's proving expensive for you. <laughs> I've, I've only got to play it once. I've, I, I have a gazebo in the garden, and I was having games meetings there. Yeah, we're all sitting in masks mm-hmm. outdoors, but it's bit, got a bit too cold for that. So, just a tad, just a tad. Okay. Um. I'm going to go back to to the overlooked for for my next game, mm-hmm. and th- this is one that I've written an entire A4 page of notes on. <laughs> um, this time, I think I know why it's been overlooked. So, this is a dungeon crawler. Um, it's called Dark Side as the Forbidden Lands. Um, I'm going to go, going to guess, Roger, that you've never heard of Darksiders. Correct. Correct. So Darksiders is a video game IP. Um, the first game in the series, I think, came out in 2010. Um, I actually got into it in 2012, Darksiders 2. Um, I don't, as a rule, play video games and haven't done for much of my adult life. Um, but about that time, for some reason, I was playing quite a few, um, and I got really into Darksiders 2. I played it, I want to say with my partner, um, but for clarity, I should say that I had physical control of the game, and she was sat on the sofa next to me, verbally helping out with the puzzles and things. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a... Um, as, as a, that, that game was sort of a Zelda-esque game. You were going off into dungeons and completing puzzles and defeating enemies and that kind of thing. Right. Um, 
So other games have come out in that series as well. They've also had um, graphic novels and actual novels, which I read and really got into this world. And it's probably the only, not just video game, the only sort of 20th century or 21st century IP that I've got into. Um, the aesthetic of it is um, very uh, sort of your gritty, dark, typical 21st century fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, but unlike most of those other worlds, it's not uh, a Norse or Celtic or even Greek mythology. It's actually based on um, or loosely based on biblical mythology, okay. um, which is an interesting twist. So in the games, you play one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> The setup for the game is that the apocalypse on Earth has started ahead of time, and you you're in charge of by the 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 uh, I don't know the the universe. Call it God if you want, but the universal forces. So you've been charged to restore balance and avert this apocalypse that's been started ahead of time with demons and angels fighting over the, the world. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where it also where it fits into. Um, mythology and everything else and as I say I think it is a slightly different um, background setting to the game Um, which leads into why it's sunk without a trace Um, and perhaps sunk without a trace is a bit uh, unfair I'll come to that in a moment but we've seen some video game properties make some big splashes in the board game market in recent years Um, this isn't one of them that has yet so it's only been released up to now as part of a limited edition copy of the board game, which was at, at retail price was $400 <laughs> <laughs> that came out last April. Now, I should say that limited edition for video games is hugely different to board games. It was actually limited. The print run was 5,000 copies. But I'm assuming you didn't pay $400 for it. I did not. I did not. Um, so just before Christmas, I noticed that it was down to a hundred and something on, um, on Amazon. Uh, so I bought that and then sold off the bust and the art book and all the other bits that were also part of this box set that I didn't want on eBay and ended up costing me about 50 quid. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, so there is a way to get it now for less money. Um, that limited edition in inverted commas, um, includes pre, pre painted miniatures as well. Um, there is available to pre-order in some places at the moment uh, a non-painted, normal standard copy of the board game on its own, not including anything else, um, which is currently priced at £120. I don't know when it's meant to be coming out. Um, last time I looked was before Christmas and all the pre-order dates were 31st of December, which means in my head there isn't a date for it and they've just randomly chosen sure. one. Um, so that's um, why it hasn't sort of been um quite hard to get hold of yeah quite hard to get hold of it's been marketed up to this point more towards video gamers and board gamers so that's why i think it's overlooked up to this point whether that will change with the the retail release of it proper i don't know but i thought it was worth um looking at not just because of my um my interest in the ip but also because you know as we discussed briefly last time um dungeon crawlers have yeah, there was this sort of big splash of Dungeon Crawlers in 2017, and not a lot has happened in the genre since. Um, and also, you know, things like Mechs versus Minions that we mentioned just now have shown that some of the video game companies, when they get involved in board games, have done a really good job of it. So I, I thought it was worth interesting looking at it from that way. So I've got here a, a list of um, pros and cons as to how it fits into that 
space that's being created. And the the first big con that I want to mention is um, something that I think is new in terms of the design space of dungeon crawlers. Yeah. And that's that it includes a deck construction mechanism. Okay. So the character you're playing, um, there's four characters, because obviously, as you'll know, there's four horsemen of the apocalypse. Mm. There's four characters in the box. Each of them comes with two decks that you are using during the game. Um, and there's also in the rule book rules for creating your own deck by selecting cards from those two. So if you want it, there's a deck construction element to the so game. But I, as I say, rough, I think that's how many new. cards you're picking from? Um, about a hundred, okay. I think. So quite, quite um, serious deck construction potentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the decks you're building are going to be sort of normally between 15, 60 cards. Um, the rules that they have for, I haven't tried building my own deck yet, but the rules that they have for it, uh, you have a, a total number of points to spend on your deck. Mm-hmm. And each card has a listing for how many points it's worth if you're doing it that way between one and three. Sure. So you, you can make your card, your, your, your deck, um, bigger or smaller, um, with more powerful or less powerful cards. And that's important. Um, so I'll come on to why that's important, I suppose. So this is a game that wears its influences very nakedly and very proudly on its sleeve, I think. Um, and one of those influences is Pathfinder, the card game, mm-hmm. um, which I've never played. But as I understand it, that has this mechanism where your deck is your life. And if your deck runs out, you're dead. Right. Okay, so the same applies in this game. So having a smaller deck with more powerful cards is not necessarily going to be to your advantage because you're going to have less time to get things done. And everything costs cards, as I understand it. And everything costs cards, exactly. So the next game that it really um, draws inspiration from is Gloomhaven. So the game is taking place um, on this sort of uh, hex landscape, um, again, like Gloomhaven, um, with multi-use cards that you've got in your hand. And on every turn, you're going to draw up to five cards. Um, you can discard them if you want at the end of your turn and draw an entire new five, five, or you can keep some and cycle through it that way. Again, bearing in mind that if you run out of cards in your draw deck, then game over. Mm-hmm. Um, and you will spend a card um, to move. You'll spend a card to interact with the board. You'll spend a card to fight. You'll spend a card for using the ability on that card, which might give you a bonus to, for example, fighting. Right. So there's a very strategic element to there into you know, what you're doing and um, how you're puzzling out, making you most of this hand of cards that you've got. Um, the third sort of big influence on it is Dark Souls. Um, and that's where the, the enemies how they interact. They're, they're a card-driven enemy. Um, that A card is going to tell you how it moves, what its priority is, where it's going to attack, how it's going to attack, all of those kind of things. Right. Um, the enemy combat is very simple to, un- to, to play with. It doesn't slow down the game at all, which is fantastic. Um, if they're stood next to... If their miniature stood next to your miniature, it does a certain amount of damage. Um, there's yeah. no dice rolling or anything else. It's just that's the damage it does. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot can... of early dungeon bashes wanted to emulate the D and D where you roll to hit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And in the solo game in particular, that can really slow things down. I think it's kind of okay where you've got a, a 
you know, a dungeon master or somebody playing against you, mm-hmm. so you're involving people in the game. But in the solo game, it really slows things down. To avert damage, there's um, armor, um, there's health, and there's uh, something called soak points, which are like a temporary armor. Mm-hmm. Um, so to avert damage, you can remove soak points, you can move armor. Um, the health points go, and similarly to if the deck runs out, if your health runs out, then you're dead. Right. So there's two ways that you can die. Um, the armor is interesting as well because those are cards that are played from your deck. So once you've played them from your deck, they're out of the game. Right. So you've just limited the size of your deck if you play the campaign going into the next game because you get to start with the armor you've already played. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are one or two ways where you can repair armor, but it's expensive. And once the armor's run out of tokens on it, it's destroyed, it's gone from the game. So a, no- a normal card player is just out of this particular uh, play as it might be whereas you can link several plays together yeah yeah exactly and some of the some of the cards if you use them for their special ability will also say um destroy this card once used mm-hmm. so it's this, the same concept that you can play it for special ability but only once during a campaign and again there is um, there are a couple of points during the campaign the campaign is um in the box is 19 different scenarios that are linked together with a story mm-hmm. which i think is you know it's a fair amount um so again there are points during that campaign where you can buy back cards that have been destroyed but it is expensive to do so right um so there's a lot of um a lot of decisions to be made in there um another pro that i'll mention is it's got a very clear and concise rule book which is fantastic for a game that at the moment doesn't have any online playthroughs or anything to help you learn it right um you know, I, cons, I, I get picky about rule book quality and I, I i've rewritten a few to, to try there, to well yeah we might come on to rule books again later in this podcast <laughs> i don't know <laughs> um cons there's another influence here um which is a fantastic game that we discussed on the last podcast and that's warhammer quest so the i've already spoke about the enemy combat the hero combat um is lifted straight from warhammer quest by which I mean you're rolling d6s, and if you get, roll a 4 or over, then you score a hit. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no mitigation in this at all. It's, it feels like it's, it's a real weak spot of the design that feels like it's come straight from the 1990s, and it's just it's a bit of a letdown. Um, and I can think of a, a couple of instances in the campaign where I lost the scenario technically, but I chose to treat it as if I'd won. Sure. Um, because I'd done everything that I needed to do apart from kill one enemy that was on the board. And I was just rolling the dice and rolling the dice and rolling the dice to get these hits. And I could look at that and say, well, if the dice had come up fours, I would have won sure. it. And that's just frustrating because unless... So some of the big bosses have got um, some armor that you can chip away at. But all the bosses and all of the other mini enemies have a normal hit point allowance. And unlike your health score, it doesn't get reduced. So if you've got to do four hits, if they've got a health of four and you've got to get four hits on Mm -hmm. them, you have to do that in one turn. Right. And for the most part, what you're rolling is four dice. So, you know, one time in 16, that's going to just happen. Yeah, exactly. And there are a couple of cards you can play that, as I say, increase your the number of dice that you roll. That's the only mitigation that exists in the game for dice rolling. 
So that is a real weak point of the game design, I think, that otherwise is a fantastic game and I've been really enjoying it and I am thinking about going back and playing it through again, despite having now played 21 games of it and completed the <laughs> the full campaign. Which which I think, you know, does say, I mean, I, I've said I'm biased and I'm invested in this world anyway, but I think it is a really fun game that I had a lot of fun with. But as I say, that, that, um, that hero combat is a definite weakness of it. Um, another campaign is, uh, campaign con is that the writing in the campaign is awful. Um, just as bad as you imagine IP crappy pulp storytelling to be. Mm. Well, um, and I, possibly I, I think it's been trans- I think you may well be too. When, you know, yeah. video games in the 80s and 90s, if it was based on a film, you knew they'd spent all the money on getting the film rights and none of it and actually making the game good. <laughs> Absolutely. And Absolutely. I, I think there's an assumption, I have met some very good board games that were based on something else. So I can, mm. like, you know, two, two favourites of mine. I think that's something that's really improving. Yeah, but I, I think at least my, my first reaction is, oh, it's based on a thing, it's going to be rubbish. And yeah, yeah. this is very often not true, but I, I, no, I, I wonder I, I think if the last five that years that's and, really changed. Yeah. Last five years, I think that's really changed. There's been some really good IP games starting to get developed, which has been interesting. Um, I, I, I think I'll, I'll I've also got to the point now that if if you've got a valuable IP, you don't just say, "Oh well, you know, my 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 kid does does games." You go to an actual game designer who, who's yeah, got a track record yeah. and say, "Hey, can you guys do something with this?" Yeah, try and do something a bit more interesting than a simple roll and move game. <laughs> Um, and I'll say as well, I guess in defense of the story writing, you know, I, I think, um, it's an Austrian company and perhaps English isn't their first language, which doesn't help. Hey, we're available for translation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, variety, um, there's, there's that campaign of 19 different scenarios. It's the typical sort of, um, dungeon crawler, dungeons and dragons type variety. You've got destroy location missions, you rescue prisoners, defeat enemies, get out as quick as you can. So it's that classic sort of tropes there. And for replayability, um, you've got the deck building and did you say multiple characters as well? So. Yeah, that's right. So you've got for playing it solo. I played it through with, um, with one character. It's a co-op game. Um, so you could play with multiple characters together, but playing with just the one worked fine. It scaled fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's four different, um, characters with four different play styles that you can play through. And each of those has got two different pre-built decks as well as the, the option to, to build your own as well. So I do think there's a, a fair amount of re- replayability in it. Um, they've also said that they'll, um, fans can submit scenarios and they'll publish them on their website which I think is a bit optimistic of them Um, maybe once more people have heard of it well absolutely Um, but we'll see how that goes and you know I do think I mean I I say I've enjoyed it I'd like to see more content out for it but even without that um, I feel it's good value I'm going to play it some more and uh, you know I'm already at over 20 games which is always a good sign isn't it yeah all right, there's a certain amount of I've started, so I'll finish. But if you're sticking sticking it through to the end and enjoying it, then yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So that was Dark Siders: The Forbidden Land. So after the last recording session, we swapped. Two games that we thought sounded interesting, and uh, I, I've got from Lee Hokkaido, which is. I'm interested to see what you think of this, Roger, for, for <laughs> any obvious readings for anybody that listened to the last podcast. Yeah, well, it, it isn't my usual style of game. Um, 
a, th- a thing I've probably said before, uh, I, I have this abstraction gap. Uh, a, a mm. very thematic game is fine, and I can get into that and see what's going on. A, a very abstract game is fine, but a, a game that is saying it's thematic, saying it's about a thing, but in practice yeah. doesn't really seem to be, you know, you're not making thing-related decisions, <laughs> always just throws me slightly. Um, I, mm. th- this is the main reason I don't play a lot of the classic Euros, or I, I don't particularly enjoy mm-hmm. them. Also, because I'm quite bad at them, but that's a separate problem. Um, <laughs> so, for this, I mean, there isn't a person you are in this game. No. You, you're, you're laying out terrain. I mean, yes, no, right, it, some it, of that terrain it's is essentially an abstract tile layer. Yeah. Um, the the thing that was most difficult to start with was simply remembering that these two symbols can never get covered up. But everything else can. Mm-hmm. This counts yeah. as connected if it's connected diagonally, but those other two things don't. Yeah. Um, that, that sort of thing. Once I got past that, then I rather enjoyed it. Um, I good. mean, it, it's not, not a game I think that I'm going to run out and buy. Um, no. but I had a good time with it. I played, played a few games, um, got scores mm-hmm. well below what you said was a good score. So that's probably a reasonable <laughs> sign to start with. Um, the, the, the solo modes, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't played it multiplayer. My, my wife isn't uh, much of a gamer, and I haven't really been mm-hmm. out much for yeah. obvious reasons. Um, but the solo mode seems, look, looking at the rules, to do a reasonable job of capturing the same, I, I want to play these cards, but I don't necessarily know which of these cards are going to be available to me. Mm-hmm. Good. So, yeah, that, that, that worked for me. Um, That's a relief. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed while we've been on air that um, I've had an email from you pop up in my inbox, so I didn't know what what you were going to say. <laughs> and you played uh, Maiden's Quest. I played Maiden's Quest, yeah. Um, which I think I said to you you last time when we were talking about it, that it was a game that I was aware of, um, that I knew hadn't had a particularly favourable uh, reception in some quarters. Mm. Um, I knew it was a card game. Um what I didn't realise, even after we'd been speaking last time, that this is basically Palm Island the Dungeon Crawler. I've never played Palm Island, so... No, so Palm Island is a game that um, you, that you play in your palm, hence hence the name. Okay. Um, deck of cards, you, you, you don't use the table at all. You, you, the entire game takes place in the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. Um which is what Maiden's Quest is is doing as well. So, I mean, from that point of view, it's it's a very portable game. It's one that, like I've done um, a couple of times this week, you can sit on the sofa while your partner's watching TV with half an eye on the TV and play a game at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's an it's a really interesting design space that just a couple of years ago didn't exist. This idea that you could play a board game without a table, let alone a board. Yeah, I've, I've seen a couple of games sold as you know it's it's great to have a few quick games while you're waiting in the queue for something but most of them do still need someone to roll the dice or whatever yeah exactly um and this game um it surprised me that the time that it took um it's not a quick game while you're waiting in the queue for for something um but perhaps we'll come back to that in a moment the first thing i'll say is the rules yes you were right they're awful (laughs) um War- forewarned by you, I went on to Board Game Geek and downloaded what I assumed was the second edition rulebook. I don't know that. I didn't look at the first rulebook, but they were still awful. Um, I was amazed as well that it's a 48-page rulebook for a very tiny game. Yeah, there, there are. There, there's a rule summary towards the back, which 
pretty much covers most of what you need. I, I do, I do yeah. think it's much, the explanation is much more complex than it needs to be. Than it needs to be. And I think that, I mean, I think there's two problems with that. I mean, one, I think it's, um, it can be a bit overwhelming. You open up a small box game and go, oh my God, what have I let myself in for? And second, I think it does hamper learning the game. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's a layout issue, but also just a bit of a rules overload issue. Mm. Um, so that was that. Um, I, I, after despairing of the rule book, I watched, uh, Rado play through. Um, played a couple of games with the rules. I then watched another online playthrough by someone else, which helped point out all the things that Rado and I were doing wrong. <laughs> um, played a couple more games, referred to the rules again. Um, I think I may have gone onto the Board Game Geek forums to check for some other things that I was getting wrong. And finally, I started to work out <laughs> how to play the game. Um, this is starting to sound like a candidate for one, one of my rulebook rewrites. It, the, the, the only problem is you need to have all those icons. Yeah, um, I mean, there is the, um, the the summary card that has all the icons on it. Um, and it's, it's, there's little things, I think, that aren't as clear in the rulebook as, as they could be. Um, I mean, even now, I've played it a dozen times, I think, and there are things like... Um, so when you face an enemy in the game, it can do two types of damage to you. One is downgrading a card in your hand, mm-hmm. and one is um, it will downgrade a, a health card, for want of a better word, a card that's got a heart yeah. symbol on it. Which can be anywhere. And if there isn't, yeah, exactly. So if there isn't a heart health card in your hand, you dive down through the deck to find one and turn it round. Sure. The order that that happens in is actually quite important. If you've yeah. got an enemy that deals both of those damages, and if I've got a, a single shield in my hand that blocks one damage, you don't want to downgrade it before it, the health damage comes in. Well, if if so, when the way that I've been playing it in my last game, um, rather than doing it all simultaneously, if the first one printed on the card was a damage to a heart card, my shield will block. Yeah, that. that's how I've been doing it as well. Yeah. But then that also means that down, the downgrade is negated as well because I've got no other cards in there to downgrade. Mm. So it's it's the order that things happen in is important and isn't clear in there. The other thing I thought wasn't clear in the rule book and took me till the second online playthrough I watched to realise was that there's no end point to the game in terms of a timer. It ends if you die or it ends if you escape or defeat the dungeon. Yeah, but, but you can go the through the deck as many times as you, you like. You can go through the deck as many times as you want. I, I think on one of the higher difficulty levels, you're supposed to do this on a certain number of passes through the deck. I think you probably should. I mean, as an example, the the very last game I played, which was this morning ahead of um, coming on here, um, I, I wrote, actually wrote down that I went through the deck 10 times mm. With no revealed enemy, no active enemies in that deck anymore, apart from the main boss. Yeah, because you've got all the upgrades that you can I've get. I've got all the upgrades. It's just a question of drawing them in the right combination to defeat that boss. Yeah. So at that point, as there, that was a grind. I went through the entire deck ten times, trying just trying to draw cards in the right combination. Basically, yeah, I, I think I had a couple like that. I, I did this uh, ten times for my ten by ten last year. Hmm. So I, I, I think, yeah, that's a potential problem with the game that it, I think it needs a, a timer on it of some point, which is what Palm Island has. I know Palm Island is a, a very different game. It's, uh, um, the sort of game we were just talking about, Roger, that you don't like, that it's, <laughs> uh, 
you, you, you're you're building up a, a village and a chain of um, production effectively, um, but obviously it's very abstracted out because you're sure. doing it with the cards in your hand. Um, but that one has a strict eight passes through the. It's a small deck. It's eighteen cards that has a strict timer of eight passes through, and it's game over. That's when you score your your game. I think with um, with Maiden's Quest, I think you you can't stop on your first pass through at um, level four. You have to go through a certain number more times. But I do wonder if they could have put an extra timer card in there to say, you know, that this is when the game ends if you haven't defeated the monster, the enemy by this point. Yeah, I mean, the the, the way it's set up, um, adding one more card would allow you to have a, a four more pass yeah. timer. So exactly, which which I think would be enough, really. And if, uh, at that point, um, I'm say, you know, this one ten times through is, I could have just stopped. I could have just said. I know that if I draw the cards in the right combination, I'm going to win this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I didn't. I carried on playing through. Um, so maybe that's on me rather than the game. I don't know. Well, yeah, but um, uh, there, there isn't a shortcut mechanism within the game to do that. And, and no. arguably there ought to be. Yeah, exactly. I, I do think there should be. Um, at the moment, you know, cycling through the deck is, is fundamental to the design of the game, um, unless you get lucky with a card draw a couple of times, which which yeah, I did that a couple of times as well, just drew the exact cards I needed to, to win the game much sooner than I might have yeah, done. Yeah, there, there are some mitigations. Um, there, there was one um, playthrough where I basically met, met the adductor on the first pass through the deck and happened to have the exact symbols I needed, yeah. which is yeah, yeah, great. Exactly. I won, but it, you know, it's, it's not exactly a... I feel proud of that kind of victory. No, no. And I mean, there's, there's other little things, I suppose. Like, um, it took me a while to realise that the wild symbol, and I'm, I'm saying this now thinking maybe even now I've got it wrong, but it took me a while to realise that the wild symbol could also be used as a key. Yeah. So, I mean, that, again, there's, that should be really obvious in the rules, but I didn't find that it was. <laughs> Yeah, and if you're using the PDF, that, that is the second, the PDF on Board Game Geek is indeed the second edition rules. It, it doesn't make it clear, but it is. Um, the first yeah. edition rules that you've got a hard copy in the box are mm. much worse. <laughs> <laughs> As in, I, I tried initially to learn from those and I was completely lost. And yeah, well, I, I learned quite a lot of games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll say, um, the, the second, playthrough that I watched was Liz Davidson um, mm-hmm. and she did a very good job of explaining the game on that in terms of solitaire play. Um, yeah, I think that may be the one I did as I just watched as well. Yeah. So I, mean, I, I I do think, I, I think this is a very clever design. I have enjoyed playing it. Um, at various points during the month I've thought about maybe adding it to my trade list. Um, I haven't. I think maybe Maybe at the moment, 10 plays is enough, but it might be something that I'll look out for again in the future. Yeah, when I finished my 10 plays, I was not thinking, oh, I'll just play it one more time before I send it off to you. Um, no. I, I do think I will go back to it, uh, but it may not be for a while. And then I'll just find, find yeah, myself Yeah, and I think mood. that's... Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Fair enough. I think um, you know, Palm Island was, was similar. I think this is a better game than Palm Island, actually, for my tastes, at least. Um, but that's, yeah, that's a similar thing that I, I keep it on the bookshelf next to the sofa. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's a much quicker game. I'll play it for you know, 15 minutes if I'm looking for something else to do. But even then, I don't want to play it that often. <laughs> yeah. It's not like every time I've got 15 minutes to kill, I reach for it. Most of the time, I don't. The, the real downside for me was um, setting up a new 
abductor and combination. Yeah, well. yeah, that's fiddly. It takes more, really more time than it needs to. And at that at yeah. that point, actually playing through it, not is not only feeling relatively quick sometimes, but uh, you, it's got the mechanism put in so that you can simply stop and say, right, I'll just leave the deck of cards like this, and then I can resume mm. without needing any other state saved. I I often play through a second game um, with the same setup. Yeah. Um, not straight away, I might leave it a couple of days, but rather than break it apart and reset it and set it up again, which, which is, it, it is a faff. Um, so I, yeah, I, I often, um, just left it that way, which of course also means that it's part shuffled. <laughs> it's less effort to set up at that yeah. point. Yeah. The, the, um, this, yeah. this is why I, I've added all those plastic bags to it to try to keep the separate mm. subdecks. Yeah. Well, I was actually, honestly though, I, I was, you know, the, I mentioned the size of the rule book and how surprised I was by that. I was actually surprised at how much was in that box when I opened it. <laughs> There's a lot of cards in yeah. there. So I, I think that would be... Think about it carefully and maybe try to get some plays before before committing to it. I, I got it in a trade, so I, I was quite mm. happy with... I can't remember what I traded for it, but it was something I didn't want anymore, and I'm happy with that. Um, yeah. I, I don't think I'd go out and spend money on it. No, I think that's fair enough. As I say, you know, I, I've been, I've enjoyed my time with it. Um, I don't feel the, the need to, to rush out and buy a copy right now, but thank you very much for sending it to me. <laughs> so that, that's lots of us talking, but, uh, let's change the tone a bit and talk with somebody else. Hello, Nicholas. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. So, <laughs> Nicholas, I've known now for what two, three years. Yeah, Some... I think three years. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, so we both, when we first met um, through Dragon Dawn Productions, we were both on the same stand together at a, at a convention. <laughs> um, Must have been Essen, no? I would think so, yeah. yeah. Have you been to any others with me? I don't think so. Uh, have I been to any others at all? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're quickly losing board game cool. Oh, yeah, you, you, yeah, you've got to come to an aircon sometime. <laughs> yeah, but we're cutting that part out, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, we've invited Nicholas onto the show today to talk about um, game development. So Nicholas was appointed by Dragon Dawn Productions to help develop um, a game I designed, Maze How and Orkney Saga, which is hitting Kickstarter shortly after this podcast is going to air, I think, the 21st of January. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's uh, development seems to be sort of a poorly understood thing um, in the board game world, so I thought it'd be interesting to, to have a conversation between us, and maybe I can find out a bit more about what Nicholas has been doing in his process as well. So... Am I right, Nick, as thinking that this is the first game you've been lead developer on? Yeah, for sure. Um, I've obviously done some playtesting and done a lot of feedback. I also mm-hmm. uh, have developed some scenarios, but not a full game. So this is the first full game. That is correct. Okay. So what? how, how did you approach the job then? It must be pretty daunting in some ways to... Yeah. To be tinking around with somebody else's design, effectively. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. Um, so th- the first thing I did, I, I just, obviously there was a game, there was a print and play that you mm-hmm. put up on, on BGG. 
And uh, so I played it a few times, and then I thought about, I guess, first of all, what I would wish from the game. Obviously, yeah. this is then not the end goal, to have a game that, you know, would be the perfect game for me, but I thought that would be a first sort of good direction. And mm-hmm. there were then a few things. Uh, I've I've also written a little bit about this. I have a, a blog on BGG called The Northern Traveler, which uh, where I go into a little bit on this type of stuff as well. So yeah. if you read this, that this would probably, some of this will be a repetition, but... So there were a few key aspects that that I that I wasn't like quite happy with, and I think the main one was actually the, the game length. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was something. I mean, obviously we've had conversations over the last year or so about this, and yeah. you, you'll know that was something I was um, concerned about as well. Yeah, exactly. And there I felt like, I mean, straight away that it's like this is a, a place I can start looking at because I know that Lee, as a designer, actually you know is not completely satisfied with this part either. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a is a very clear distinction between what I would do as sort of designing something or you know working on my own game as opposed to working on something that someone else has done. It's like it's it's not my job to make this the game I would have wanted it to be. Like had I started from scratch, but it's like to sort of realize Lee's vision in a sense. Yeah. Um, and of course, in that process, like a little bit of me will flow into it as well, right? But of uh, course, and I, yeah. I think that's good. To, I mean, as you say, you're not trying to turn it into the game that's perfect just for you. I don't necessarily yeah. think a designer should be designing the game that's just for them either, if it's going to be published. It's, it's yeah. fine to to put that up as a print and play somewhere on the internet for free, but if you're expecting people to pay money for it, that's a different thing entirely. That, that's true. That's true. Well, I, th- I think this is something that, as far as I know, at least is the terminology is unique to board gaming. Uh, when I've been involved in writing role-playing stuff, there, there have been times when somebody else has taken something I started and taken it further, or I've taken somebody else's thing they started. Mm. Um, but basically, we, we are all the authors, and then there may be an editor in the process who, who will say, could you tweak this and this? But, mm. but, but, the, but this, uh, this idea of somebody does the initial design, somebody else develops it as distinct roles is not something you find in, in the role-playing side, or at least not in the stuff I've done. So and did, did you start with a specific objective of, you know, it's, it's got to have not too many components or be, or you know, something like that, or, or was it just generally make it better? Well, so it, it started with generally making it better. So as I said, the first thing I looked at was um, was the game length, and then after that I started looking at... Um, what parts of the games were particularly engaging and what parts of the game did I think could could fall off without the sort of the, the core tension or like the core joy of the gameplay actually disappearing. And so as far as the game length went, I, I um, so I'll describe a little bit how the game worked in the initial version. There was, uh, so there's uh, health and food, which are two mm-hmm. resources. If you run out of health, you die and food is something that you can use uh, with uh, specific cards, and uh, obviously it's a card game where you play to a row and the cards do different things. But then there was a third resource that uh, was in the original version, which were called actions. That's right. And actions had had two functions. One of them was that when you played a fourth excavate passage card in a row, um, then you got to remove a passage token. And this was the goal of the game to remove all the passage tokens. So mm. you you had to do two things. You had to play four of these Excavate Passage cards and you had to spend an action to do so. The second thing you could do with the actions was to reshuffle the deck. And and this led to sort of... Uh, so you could win the game uh, at some early stage and then it just wasn't that crazy long, but it, it could also end up in a in a sort of a, a loop where you will almost almost guaranteed to lose, 
but you hadn't actually lost according to the rules yet. And these were the games that, that really could, could go on very, very long. Like you could have, I mean, I, I remember playing uh, 45 or 50, sometimes even 60 minutes yeah. just to get through a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, and that was just too long, especially it was, it, considering. It sort of collapsed under its own weight at times, didn't it? No, a, I, a I, little bit. I think I, I was, it's been, you know, a while since I played that, the game in that shape, but it was certainly at a stage where I felt I could win fairly consistently, mm-hmm. but it became a real grind and it was sort of 45, 50 minutes. And as you say, that, that just yeah. wasn't fun at that point. Yeah. And I often think it was at a point where, I mean, sometimes there, there would be games where you were almost guaranteed to lose. Mm. And then it's the question, like, what are you telling the players? And you haven't actually lost. But if you realistically look at it, you, you probably won't win. But the rules haven't told you yet that you've lost. So you yeah. just keep playing and playing and playing. And that I just found, you know, that, that just wasn't very satisfying, right? Mm-hmm. So so that was one of the first uh, places I started to look. Like, so so what is the, the point of the actions? It's to sort of uh, have something to use to reshuffle the deck uh, and it's also reasons that you're managing with. And I thought, could that not be cut away and you do all of this over cards? And so I, I removed the actions from the game and um, the game actually functioned fairly well uh, already then without the actions. The issue then obviously started becoming that, you know, you didn't have to manage the actions. So there was no clear way when you would do, uh, when you reshuffle the deck because you needed to reshuffle it to actually uh, be able to, uh, ex- to, to remove enough passage tokens because otherwise you didn't have enough cards to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so, and, and I think that's, that's pretty, uh, that's been pretty sort of, um, uh, that's been defining of this process is that when you, when, as soon as I sort of solved an issue, which I felt the actions were, uh, a new problem then emerged through that because obviously the actions were there for a reason, right? Like it wasn't yeah. like the game was <laughs> just poorly designed. It just like, it just didn't feel like <laughs> it was saying so. Yeah, no, obviously <laughs> not. Uh, uh, I mean, it functioned the way it did, right? Like it was a very, a very fun and very functional game. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I then took away one part, then actually another part stopped working, right? And that was the actual excavating the passage fast enough. And so since the original, uh, uh, print and play was based on a normal deck of cards, which then would obviously, well, depending how the deck looks, it would have black and red cards or, yeah. you know, uh, a standard deck would be black and red. Um, then I thought, okay, so maybe there's a point here where you can then start uh, excavating more passages if you actually play cards of the same color. Mm-hmm. And so then I start, then I started changing the rule that, okay, they excavate passage cards. If there are four of them and they're all the same color, then you actually remove two passages. So that way you could actually start, uh, excavating, uh, the, removing these passage tokens quicker. That, that, I mean, when I first saw that you suggested that, I thought that was an interesting, interesting twist that, you know, it made use of something that was already in the game in a new way. Yeah. And I think that, that was, that was something I was aiming for because there is another, um, mechanic that is now all still in this version of the game that was also in the original and mm. it was the going mad because obviously yeah, you're right. playing vikings that are trapped in a tomb <laughs> and um if you have a, ha- full, a hand that is full of uh cards of one color i believe that was in the original version as well yeah. the one color right yeah yeah that's right and uh, that's go... pretty much the only thing that mechanism was used for originally yeah, exactly. And then and that's that was one of those mechanisms that I really liked, but I felt mm. it was underutilized because there was no real reason to actually hold cards of the same color in hand. Like yeah. the, the game didn't incentivize you to do so. So it became often a little bit of a sucker punch. Like, okay, now you randomly drew those cards and now you went mad. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, and then I thought, okay, so now we can combine this. So I can try to solve the issue of that emerged when I removed the actions that you don't uh, you don't um, remove passage tokens fast enough, while at the same time incentivizing players to sort of go close to that edge, you know, to like yeah. uh, peer into the abyss of madness. You know, it's just being just pushing yourself to that edge where you're so close that that you actually have a real risk of going mad, not just randomly, but because you actually sort of take that risk by holding cards of a certain color in hand, trying to excavate more. Yeah, there's an interesting push-pull type dynamic there now, and it adds to the tension of the game, which is you know important to its um, to its atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, so. I mean, it's, it's also that there's now people playing on the earliest levels and the easiest levels. And I know because I've already been speaking to some previewers about mm-hmm. this. Um, you especially with with removing two passage sections with four cards potentially, if you can match up the the suits mm-hmm. right. Um, you can get through the first, the easy level quite easily in one mm-hmm. pass through the deck. Yep. But the way that, um, the way that you can't use action tokens anymore to, to shuffle up and start again, mm-hmm. um, there's only one way to shuffle cards back into the game at the moment. Although, although Nicholas and I have been talking just today about expanding that option. Mm. But at yeah. the moment, the only way to do that is through this going mad effect. Yeah. So that's another sort of interesting dynamic to this suit management card management in your mm-hmm. hand that for the most time you're going to be wanting to avoid going mad because well this speaks to itself doesn't that no none yeah. of us want to do that <laughs> um but at certain times in the game you're going to have to do it in order to get your discard pile back into your draw pile because if yeah. your draw pile runs out then it's game over yeah exactly and i think th- this was this was one of sort of the um the key goals of mine while i worked on it that i wanted um, the the different sort of mechanics and the different rules to serve as many purposes as possible. Mm-hmm. So going mad was in one point it was a punishment for being too greedy for keeping mm-hmm. too many colors uh, too many cards of the same color in your hand to have these perfect rows of excavate yeah. passage cards. It was a um, a, a mechanic mechanism that was very thematic, mm-hmm. but it also had this little bit subtle twist that I think is. Probably not apparent on your first play necessarily that you could actually use it on the higher difficulties to sort of reshuffle the deck in case you weren't able to do things on time. And even perhaps incentivizing you to not play the excavate passage cards uh, if you can't get four of the same color, but instead discarding them, trying to get them back in the deck and then later on getting that perfect row of the yeah. same color instead. So there's sort of a, a, a subtle tactic to it that from the name of the mechanic maybe isn't uh, really obvious, I, but yeah. I really like it thematically as well. Um, I think, you know, when we just said that you yeah. know, going mad sounds like a bad thing you want to avoid. Yeah. But it's that, it's about that tension and that pressure. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, maybe what you really need to do is just scream, shout, kick a few things <laughs> around and then we can calm down and start again. And that this sort of simulates that yeah. process. You have that, have that moment and then you shuffle yeah. the cards up and you, you're ready to go again. Uh, you, you're talking yeah. about Vikings after all. Berserker gang is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, maybe, maybe that that's the thing. We should have called the mechanic a Berserker rage instead of going mad, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then there are people are like, what, I discard my hand and I lose life for Berserker rage? Like, <laughs> no, I, I I think it's aptly named, but it's true. Like maybe there's like there's some rage and madness all mixed up there, just to sort of drive you on. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, so have you seen it then sort of primarily as a, a process of um, of streamlining and identifying the, you know, the, the things that make the game fun and cutting some of the fat? Yeah, absolutely. I... At, at some point, it became also, uh, to, to get back to, to Roger's initial question, mm. um, at some point, it also became a little bit about the, 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 the components. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the original was obviously a print and play that was also playable with a standard deck of cards. Yeah. Um, which is theoretically a, a good size for a deck. Mm. Um, but that again felt, it, it didn't feel necessary and it felt like a place where some fat could be trimmed. But yeah. of course, from a production standpoint, it's also very good if, uh, you know, it's a standard print sheet of, uh, of this sort of normal, um, board game sized card or MTG mm-hmm. sized card, uh, is usually 55 cards. And if that, if the standard deck can be brought down to somewhere in the thirties and forties, instead of being a 50 plus size deck, then there's more space to add other cards that can be, you know, uh, player aids, expansion cards, and so on and so forth. So at some point, I also started like pursuing maybe getting the deck slimmed down a little bit. Yeah. And um, so that's, I guess, it, I guess it does a little bit of both. It is a little bit of streamlining in the sense that you do actually reduce the size of the deck to sort of cut a little bit of the fat, but it also has a lot of sort of positive implications for the production of the game. So uh, opens up new possibilities for expanding the game in other ways. Absolutely, because literally. <laughs> yeah, it, it literally does. Yeah, because not only does it help with the production, right? Because you can actually put more on a sheet and and so on. I mean, that's sort of the mm-hmm. the maybe a bit boring sort of uh, nuts and bolts behind the scenes of of uh, game production, but it also makes any card that you may you shuffle into the deck more impactful, right? Because the deck is smaller. Mm-hmm. So if you would have say a modular expansion that adds say four cards to a deck, and the card is fifty plus cards. Then those four will obviously have a much lesser impact than uh, if than if the deck had say uh, like now thirty six cards to start mm. with. So, so I think that's also something that makes uh, makes the game more interesting. That when because we do we will probably get to those. It has these modular expansions that you can add in, and now every time you do put those in, the the character of the deck does actually change in a much more um, palpable way. Yeah. Well, since you brought it up, why don't you go straight into them? I mean, that was a, a brave thing, I think, um, to start designing those some of those expansions. Yeah, I, I guess that's where I sort of went off the rails a little bit. Because <laughs> 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 I, I don't, at least I don't remember asking for permission before I did. I think I just came up with the idea. I thought, okay, let, let's just try this out, and then I, I can I can ask Lee what he thinks of it afterwards, right? But, yeah, so um, you weren't too intimidated working with somebody else's design, really. <laughs> well. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I thought it was something that, that, uh, that was really fun and really interested me. And of course, I would have been disappointed had you said like, no, 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 no expansions mm. needed. Like, we don't want this. Uh, but, you know, it would have been, you know, an hour or two of me just tinkering a bit before asking for permission. So it's not a big deal. I thought it's, you know, better to try it and actually present mm-hmm. you with something that is not just a vague idea, but like, actually, this is what I think it could be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyhow, so then like in the process of just cutting it down a bit, I was also just researching similar games. And obviously the, the, the big game in this genre, I would say is the Onirim, uh, from Oliver's yeah. games. Yeah. And yeah, obviously you both know it. And, uh, I think there's been two editions of that, I believe. I think the first yeah. edition had something like three, four or five small modular expansions in it. 
I'm not sure if it had any. I mean, certainly the second one had more when it had seven. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking the first one had something at least. Anyhow, okay. the second maybe it edition. Had two. Does that sound right? May, maybe two, just yeah. yeah. Anyhow, I the second that had several. I, I don't remember mm. the exact number seven. now. Yeah. Seven. Okay. Because yeah. there, there so are 128 combinations of expansion. <laughs> no, you know, in theory, you could this play a man who knows his math. 120, yeah. 128 <laughs> different games with the same box. That yeah. So. So that what to me is sort of the gold standard of, of the genre, right? Mm. And then I was looking at my show, which I thought at that point had a, had a really compelling core gameplay. Um, but we're also, you know, as you said earlier, you know, it's not just about making a game that's, you know, like the, the game that is for you, but you also have to try to somehow anticipate what, what the audience might want. And if you're coming from a Nirem that has, you know, well, now I don't remember what Roger said, 128 ways <laughs> uh, to play it. And then you come to my show and then you're like, uh, well, how many ways do I have to play this? And you're like, well, one. Um, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't sound so compelling, right? And it can be, right? But, uh, you know, it's, it's also a little bit about the marketing and what type mm. of a product it is. And there, at least for me as well, and as I presume for many others, it's, it's just like replayability and, and you know, the, the, the ability to customize the type of experience you want, I think is a big selling point. And that's why I thought that uh, I could start working on some of these small expansions. So each one now has three cards that you add to the deck. Yeah. And the original deck has 36 cards. So it's not a lot of cards, but since the deck is now so, uh, at this point was so much smaller than it was originally, uh, I thought that that would, would be still be something that would actually uh, affect the gameplay in a major way, and I, mm. I, I think it has. Uh, and it presumably uh, helps that since, since you are going through the entire deck possibly several times, you are going to see yeah. those expansion cards. They're going to show up in in, in every game using them. Correct, exactly. And um, and when when I started looking at them, I was also not only then I guess I got sort of as I said I went off the rails a little bit, and then I actually started looking at okay. If, if sort of I was working on a similar game, what would I be looking for at this point? What would I feel is maybe something that would make this, uh, this design a little bit more compelling or perhaps a little bit more interesting? Mm. And there were a few sort of, um, aspects of the game that I felt like the core deck was not interacting with. Uh, and so one of them was food. So there is food in the game, which is a resource. And there are cards that uh, makes you lose food. There are cards that make you gain food. And there are a few cards that allows you to use food to heal. Yeah. And these are sort of the ways you use food. And I, I think for a core, like for a core gameplay, this works really well. Um, but it, but it's not doing a lot with this. So you have like mm-hmm. this tracker and, and the food is, is not that often that impactful. And there will be games very likely where you simply lose all your food early and you just end up not using food for anything. Right. And there I thought, okay, so this is a place I could start. I could make a small expansion with three cards, and all of these three cards will all have something to do with food. Uh, and so there then was there, there's one card that has uh, life loss on it, yeah. or that forces you to lose food. So either it's good if you play it for the life loss, then actually having more, having food to heal is more useful. Or you can have, you can discard it to lose all your food, but you need to have food to be allowed to do that. So either you play to lose health or you discard it to lose food, but you need to have food to discard it. So in both of these aspects, food would then be useful. Uh, And that's an incentive to run with just a little bit of food. So when the card comes up, you only lose that much. 
Correct, exactly. Because uh, in, in the original deck, you were very fairly often incentivized to have no food, for example, because there was a card that said you lose all food, and if you don't have any food, then that's fine, right? Then you might actually want to have no food, then you have nothing to lose once you play that card. Uh, so this sort of like turned that around a little bit and actually made food uh, a little bit more important. And actually having exactly one food was often sort of the correct way to sort of uh, set yourself up uh, for when that card came up. And then the second card actually allows you to reshuffle cards from your discard into the deck. So without going mad, you actually had a little bit of that reshuffle effect. Uh, but you could only do it using food. So for each food you spent when you played the card you shuffle two cards back into the deck. So then you could just more precisely just pick exactly the cards that you want to have in your deck to sort of seed it. And yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a really powerful thing to do. I mean, two cards doesn't sound like a lot, but when you've only got, let's say it was 36 card deck yeah. now, so let's say you've been through half the deck. Yeah. You've only got 13 cards in your discard pile. Yeah. Um, at most. Yeah. But most of those cards in your discard pile. So when you, uh, I don't think Roger knows, but when you play a card and when you discard a card, it has an effect. Yeah. Um, and most of the ones you're discarding are negative cards because, <laughs> because you don't want to play them. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to but then when you, again, that, yeah. Then means when you draw back up and that disc, if you shuffle that discard pile back into your draw pile, you're getting all those negative cards to deal with again. So if, if you've played it, it's out of the game. Is that the? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But it allowed, so this, I mean, this thing of being able to cherry pick some of the cards from that discard pile and move them back into your draw pile is a really mm. big thing. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it, it, the fact that that card is in the deck and you know that you'll, you'll have that effect coming up because you never randomly just discard cards. Like mm. you, you will see them in your hand at some point. Unless you die before, obviously, but (laughs) we're not planning on that. Uh, But so because of that, uh, then, then you can, you can just be pretty sure that like, if I just stock up on four food, like I can just discard all of these good cards. As long as I see to that I have food and I stay alive until that card comes up, I can just put all of those good cards back and then I just have Mm. a deck with only good cards. So that sort of allowed a little to, to use the, the food mechanic that was already there. And just go a little, sort of a little bit deeper on that mechanic. And it, it, it opens up a completely new strategy if you're using that expansion in the game. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Exactly. Yeah. And presume you're, you're aiming to, to say, yeah, some some games present themselves as, you know, here here are the basic rules, here are the full rules. But but it sounds, yeah. sounds as if you're, you're aiming for, if you're looking, you're taking an Urim as a model, then then you're aiming to say, yeah, the basic game is still a perfectly good playable game, mm. and. Yeah. Yeah, if you want yeah. this particular angle to it, you add this expansion in, but you don't. You don't just keep it set up with all the expansions by default. No, no. I, I, I think I, I sometimes play it with, uh, or I have played it. I also played it recently because I just got the pre-production copy. So it is playable with all the expansions, but like sometimes barely. Like it's, <laughs> it's not recommended. Like it can be very challenging. And I think the core gameplay is, is, is very good. Um, it's just, I felt like there are certain mechanics that you could go deeper on, but I probably wouldn't have, even if I was designing it, like, as the core deck. Like, I think this is expansion material. Uh, so I felt like this was sort of the right spot to sort of, uh, explore those parts of the game a little bit deeper. Mm. Um, because then probably you, you play the, the core deck a few times, you have a little bit of a feeling for it. And then it actually also, I think, feels more meaningful. Because you're coming from, okay, food was useful, I had that one game where it really saved me, then I had that other when it didn't do anything, and then you're like, okay, what does the, 
what do these food cards now do? And you see the effects and then you're like, oh, okay. So food now really does something differently. And that I think is what really creates replayability. Like one of the things, right? That Mm. you really have the possibility of playing a game that, that feels uh, a bit different yet the same. So, um, the second expansion then was, um, was the one where I thought about using discard pile because, um, of course there was the reshuffling, but there wasn't any, any real sort of discard pile shenanigans that you could, you could put something there and then have it back later or so. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that one then had cards that either forced you to discard cards. So either you dis, you were forced to discard card your hand Mm -hmm. or forced to discard cards randomly off of the top of your deck. But as in everything in this game, you have the choice to either play the card or to discard the card. So if you play that card, then you just discard the top five cards of your deck randomly. But if you discard that card, you discard your hand. Yeah. And this is the, the, so these, these modular sets come with sort of a bad card and a good card. And I think this one is the one, the one that's the most nuanced because <laughs> actually discarding your hand is not always a bad thing because you might have a garbage hand and just bad yeah. cards. Yeah. So you could find yourself in a spot where you just play to discard your hand because you just find yourself in a spot where every single card is bad and then actually it becomes maybe even the best card in the deck for that particular Mm. moment. And then there's another card, the conserve card, that either allows you to play it to uh, return a card that has already been played to hand. So sort of breaking what what Roger was pointing out earlier that when a card has been played... Uh, it is out of the game pretty much, yeah. but here you can actually return the one card the one time, um, or you can discard it to return a card from your discard. Meaning it's less punishing to discard good cards. You can actually get them back at a later point. And uh, then the third one has a, is, is working a little bit with the madness mechanic uh, because, as I said, there are each card has a suit, and if all the cards have the same suit uh, at the end of your turn, then you go mad. And here there's then a horror card that has both suits. So it just increases the likelihood of you going mad. Yeah. And then there's a hope card that doesn't have a suit. And right. then obviously the horror will have a very negative effect, uh, no matter whether you play it or discard it. And then the hope card just has a very positive effect. Like you can, uh, you can look at the top of your deck if you discard it and decide if you want to leave those cards on top or not. Or you can play it as an excavate passage card of any suit. Or, or importantly, you know, as you just hinted at, it has the third positive effect of just keeping it in your hand. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because if it doesn't have a suit, you can actually uh, decide that never to go mad. Uh, so yeah. you can just hold it. And of course, a little bit more subtly, you can you can hold it and try to have all the other cards be one color and mm-hmm. then play it at the point where you're hoping to go mad, yeah. and then just draw up so that you just sort of uh, keep a hand that's very full of one color, uh, just to sort of increase your chances of going mad when you want to do it. So, yeah. So, in in this process, you, you, you've, you've talked about how, how you've come up with ideas and put them into practice. So how much communication is, is there in this? I mean, are you basically coming back to Lee and saying, here, here is this module... And this is actually how it works. You know, here, here is a draft rule set or whatever. Is, is it at a more primitive stage, or how, how does that come together? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> do, do you remember, Lee? Like, I, I remember when I when I was working on the core deck. I think I, I, I always waited for a green light on the sort of general direction. Like, I think actions should be cut, and I think the game should be shorter. And I would just work on it when you said, "Yeah, go for it. Let me know what comes up." 
It's interesting because, as Nicholas said, so the game originated as uh, something I designed in the the solo PMP contest. Um, it, I, I put the first version, or the, the I shouldn't say the first version of the game. I mean, this is really <laughs> a re-implementation of that game. Now it, it's vastly different to the original. Mm. Um, but that game that would have been 2016. I put that in the contest and made it available on Board Game Geek as a print and play. Um, and I remember, I, I've never really shopped my games around publishers. Maze How was the only one I ever did make an appointment with a publisher. Um, it was at UK Games Expo to, to go and talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I remember saying to him quite clearly early in the conversation, I said, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend this is a perfect game. It really needs a, a developer to get hold of it and improve it to the next level, which to my mind, I thought was, you know, me being realistic, being honest. Um, and, and, and you know, it was a sensible thing, whereas you could kind of see it in his face that, oh God, there's problems with this game. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so presum- was, presumably your stereotypical publisher wants something they what they can do. They don't need to do any work on at all, and it will just make well, make them huge amounts of money. But yeah, but I mean, you know, surely realistically, I mean, development is always going to be a, a good thing to do, and it's better to yeah. do that with a designer that recognises that. Yeah. Um, and certainly, hear so stories it, of I mean, prima donnas and so on. Yeah, and that was very much the the spirit that I approached this in. You yeah. know, when Nicholas was appointed as developer, I, I was I was really glad. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I tried to to give him as free reign as possible and not be precious about any, anything that I'd done up to that point. No, I, I felt you were very open to everything, so that's uh, that's certainly not uh, that was certainly not a problem. But uh, I, I don't remember how it was with the expansions, though. Like I think I think I just did those and I showed mm-hmm. them to you. I think that yeah, was the, the yeah, way those went. And I think when I was sort of developing the core gameplay, then it was more like I was asking for yeah. permissions before, but. Of course, at the point where I was doing the expansions, I mean, I think you were fairly happy with the stuff I'd been doing so far. Yeah, I was. And I mean, I was happy when you came back with those expansions as well. Um, And I know we've mentioned Only Room a lot in this. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I I was. it had always been in my mind that it should be possible to plug some of those sort of mini expansions, modules, whatever you want to call them, into the game. Yeah. Um, Personally, I've never been a fan of the gameplay of Only Room. Um, but that's never stopped me comparing Maze Howl to it. I, you know, I, I'm very yeah. aware of the similarities. Yeah. It's just that I never particularly enjoyed owning him. I think I'd rather play a normal game of patience than play that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. You don't have to like it, right? But if some, yeah. if, if a game is so so popular and so well known, right? Like, yeah, it it, 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 it does a lot of becomes a, lot a of reference, people, apparently. Right? Yeah. No, I, I I see what you mean. Yeah. But I, yeah, I, I find the story, I, you told me the story about the publisher earlier. I, I find it a bit surprising. Like, I, I don't know, like Roger, you've done a lot of RPG stuff, right? Like, is, is that imaginable that an RPG writer will come to a publisher and it's like, yeah, I have this new Cthulhu game, but I, I, I don't want you to have an editor for it. Like, it's perfectly <laughs> written. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, well, I, I, I've mostly written for Steve Jackson games and they, I think they have a, a stronger editorial hand than many publishers, uh, okay. but they, they definitely want to say, yeah. yeah. Uh, apart from anything else, I, I have had major disagreements with with uh, some of my editors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the thing I always have to keep in mind is that they want to make the book better, I want to make the book better, we just disagree yeah. on how to do that. And, you know, the, the, there was one where I thought, 
you've you've got this completely wrong. That's that's not what I'm saying at all. Okay, yeah. I should probably say it better then. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and mean, I think that's what reassured me with Nickers. You know, I, I was. I knew that I wanted a developer to get their hands on the game because I knew that there were problems with the game. We, we mentioned the the length already, yeah. Um, and when Nicholas was appointed, so I, I saw that as a as a good thing. Um, but I didn't give Nicholas any specific instructions. I think you asked, didn't you, Nicholas, as to what you, what I wanted you to work on? Yeah, I don't. I don't remember. I, I remember think I, you did, and yeah. I, I kind of um, ignored your request. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really. I was really pleased when I saw that you'd identified that, you know, the, the time and, um, the, the sort of the, the, the streamlining of it, the, yeah. you know, the, the action track and those kind of things. I'd re- I was really relieved that you'd identified the same problems I'd, I'd had. Mm. And that meant that we had a fresh set of eyes to, to look at working on those problems. Yeah, I, I don't remember that, but that, that, that could be, yeah. You, I, maybe I did ask you and just didn't respond. Mm. And then I was like, okay, I, I don't have time for this. I, I'm just going to play it then. <laughs> And, and see how it feels, but probably that was a good thing in the end. Then, like, I I, sh- I shouldn't have been told from the get go what the problem is because mm. uh, that is sort of for me to to analyze, right? Yeah, I think I so. should I should come from outside and see like wh- what do I as a player now perceive to be the issue here? Because yeah. you might have a completely different perception because maybe you had been. I don't know, digging into to some specific mechanic that you thought w- had to work in a specific way for thematic mm. reasons or something. Who knows, right? And yeah, I mean, I, I think that's certainly easy as a designer. You can get hung up on you know on how a game should work as yeah. opposed to how the rules actually work and what people do with those rules. Yeah, I, I literally I listened to your previous episode and you were talking about dwarf there a little bit. Yeah. I, I admittedly didn't didn't finish the whole episode, but I did hear the dwarf oh, part. It's a long episode, you know. It, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I will though. I just I just didn't have time. Um, and, and you were talking about dwarf, and I thought that mm. was, that was a good example for that, right? Because you you said you played it with your uh, your partner. Yeah. And uh, and you had this sort of like, you know, just uh, like uh, you know high high trust. Uh, yeah. You're the sort of uh, nice nice people, sort of care bear gameplay. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a silly word, but that's what I think. Yeah, I think that that's him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and which which is which is uh, which is absolutely uh, you know legitimate. I mean, like mm. that's that's how a lot of people play, and I, I mean, I tend to play with my wife a lot like that too. And yeah. then you played it with your brother, and then he was like, "Well, I'm just gonna like exploit whatever weaknesses I can find." Yeah. Even if that makes the game terrible for both of us, like I, I'm just sort of gonna like try to drive the game, uh, to, you know, to to the to the limits so that I can have the best possibilities of winning. And I think yeah. that's when you started changing the incentives a little bit for when mm. to fight monsters and stuff. And yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That, there's uh, a classic of war games design. If if you if you're designing, say, the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah. And you test it with people who know the Battle of Gettysburg. You will never yeah. discover the flaw in your rules that lets a cavalry charge uphill against fortifications succeed because <laughs> they're never <laughs> going to try it. It was interesting yeah. after I pitched Dwarf to to Timo and Tinsco at Dragon Dawn Productions mm. for the first time. They rang me up two weeks later, later and said, "Oh, we really like it. It's such a mean little game." I thought that's it's not mean at all. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, true. So. I think I have to ask Lee. Were, were there any any changes that were, to which you just had an immediate no, no? I can't can't have that. Oh. I, no, I, I mean, unless Nicholas wants to contradict me, I don't think there has been. I think, I mean, for my 
side that you know, it's been a really positive experience and really just what I hoped to get out of uh, out of a developer for the project. I, I will say there was one thing I, I did mm. not go deep on, it, but that was actually a thing when working on the expansions where I did ask Lee beforehand. Because mm-hmm. I was thinking about having cards that triggered certain effects when they were drawn from the deck. So now that the game works like that, that you, like, no card has any effect until you play it or That's you discard right. it. Yeah. And you have the choice. And, and I was sort of like playing with the thought, like, okay, maybe there are like, uh, I don't know, like curse cards or something, you know, like you're disfavored by the mm. gods. And, and that if that card comes up and you draw it into your hand, then there's straight an effect and you don't have any possibility of mitigating it mm-hmm. and i think that was that was a spot where least like straight said like like okay like if if you know you do a lot of testing and there is sort of a consensus that this mm. would work and so then fine but like generally i am against this sort of of this sort of gameplay like i just yeah, like forgotten about that conversation yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it, it was just a small, I mean, I just asked, like, it, it wasn't like I had to scrap, like, a lot of work yeah. they had worked on, but, and th- there I really felt like, okay, like, I probably would enjoy that type of expansion, but obviously mm. this is not Lee's vision of what type of game it should be, and no, that, I think, then um, I think yeah, it's wrong. That, yeah, my, my, my view of that idea was that really that was something there where it, <sighs> Again, I mean, it's difficult as we're talking about the ways different people like to play and the different ways to have fun. But yeah. to my mind, that that was something that the game was doing to you, and it was just a random effect yeah. that you had no control over. Yeah. So, so, Which, it, so the, the mechanic might work better in a game where people are expecting more random effects and things like that. Mm. I, I mean, like, sort of in hindsight, I think it was the right call because I do think it will sort of go against the rest of the gameplay. Yeah. It would feel like, okay, I have like this core gameplay where I always control which effect comes. And of course, there's a randomness of how the cards come out of the deck, but you never draw anything and suddenly you just lose without mm. doing anything. Like you do have to play in this card and you choose which effects happen. And this would sort of go against that gameplay. So. I, I do. Th- I do think it was correct in hindsight to not go down that route. Interesting, and you won't know this, Nicholas, but it would have fit with the very first iteration of the rules. Oh, really? At that point, it wasn't even a card game; it was a dice game. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that didn't work at all. It wasn't fun. Okay. Um, God bless the playtesters that came back, and <laughs> only one of them was honest enough to say to me, "This doesn't work." <laughs> oh, good. I didn't know that. But, but, but so. So what's, but there was also actions and food and stuff, or like how? I can't remember what was in it at that point. It was a very yeah. early stage of development, and it, it was really, it, it was awful. It was oh, you know, basically okay. roll and resolve dice. Oh. Okay. Um, and it wasn't working. It was just complete back to the drawing board then, and oh, it, yeah. it became a card game after that point, and sort of more towards um, how it ended up being. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the so, the next ha- game, Maya Shop Two. Yeah, Return to the Tomb. Maze how the dice game. We'll, we'll get there eventually. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. And then then there's the Maze how the I don't know the board game. Yeah, the miniatures game. Roll the and miniatures ride. game. The roll and ride exactly. <laughs> the flip and ride. The airplane. I don't know. <laughs> so having done this process once, being a developer. I mean, a, would you do it again? And and B, would you change anything about the way that you went about the job? Um, I would definitely do it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's been a lot of fun for sure. Uh, would I change anything? 
Nothing comes to mind, really. No. Okay. I mean, it's, it's it's hard to say. I'm sure I would do it differently. Yeah. But there's there's nothing that I look back at and feel like, okay, like this was clearly a mistake and I was wasting mm-hmm. my time or something. Um, but I, I assume I would be able to do it more efficiently. But uh, otherwise, I, I think it was a good process. I mean, it, of course, it took it took a while. Like it was a it was a few months that I was yeah. working on it and. Of course, we're still every now and then discussing, you know, maybe some details. Um, most, well, this mostly, morning. <laughs> yeah, actually this morning. Uh, <laughs> I wrote up that the card maybe could have a slightly different effect, but that is obviously not, not decided, but, uh, but also production stuff, right? Because uh, mm. now we're getting some feedback back from the previewers as well. And then it's like, well, you know, how should, how should food be counted on the board and stuff like this? I mean, I, I think that goes into this sort of area of work a little bit as well, because mm. also there's a, you know, a user interface sort of um, aspect of it, but um, uh, no, no, I, I think I, I've been very happy with the process. So uh, good, yeah. And uh, apart from vetoing cards that have random effects, <laughs> I haven't done anything to annoy you too much. <laughs> I don't think you've done anything to annoy me at all. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I think. I think this type of relationship also needs a little bit of a hierarchy. And I mean, here you sort of, you know, you pull the boss card at the right moment. And I think that was the, the right call, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, so, someone has to decide at some point. And, uh, it's it's yeah. a valuable card. You need to choose the right moment to play it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So Good. Right. So, um, apart from development work on Maze Tower, you've also been uh, tinkering with your own design. Yeah, I am working on. Um, well, so those who know Dragon Door Production uh, mm-hmm. will will know Perdition's Mouth Abyssal Rift, which is a um, what should you call it? A Euro-inspired dungeon crawler. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's the most Euro of all dungeon crawlers. Um, <laughs> yeah, one of these days I, I've got to play this thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You should. It's it's a strange thing. On the one hand, you're saying if you know Dragon Dawn Productions, you know that game, and I think that's true because it is sort of their biggest game to date. It's the one that most people yeah. will know them for. But at yeah. the same time, it's been vastly overshadowed by other games that came out around the same time. Yeah, T- tough genre, no dungeon yeah. crawlers. Um, obviously, the, it came on Kickstarter like almost simultaneously with both Sword and Sorcery and Gloomhaven, I think. Yeah. Uh, which both obviously are pretty sort of uh, defining of the genre nowadays. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it is very unique, very Euro-y. It has a rondelle, it has card play, um, sort of almost a, a resource management feel to it in a sense and how you yeah. how you sort of move around and, and sort of um, spend your actions and stuff. So anyhow, and you and I have both designed scenarios for it. Exactly, and that's sort of how I sort of started down this route. Actually, mm-hmm. I uh, I started doing playtesting for the Traitor Guard expansion, mm-hmm. and uh, and there I then also and there I had a lot of feedback, and then later on I started doing some scenarios, and also you obviously did a few, and we played each other's, and yeah, uh, it's been a lot of back and forth there. So anyhow, to answer your initial question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, uh, that's, from that game, I am now making a, uh, card game spin-off. So now we're like connecting back to the jokes we were making about my shoulder, <laughs> the <laughs> dice game. Now we're talking about Perdition's Mouth, the card game. So it's called Beyond the Rift. And, um, I think it, it's, it's mostly a card game in the sense, or like a Perdition's Mouth card game in the sense that it uses, 
uh, the, the characters, it's a continuation of the story, mm-hmm. and it has uh, certain things that are inspired mechanically from it. So we call it a perdition's mouth card game because it's not, uh, you know, like you have, I don't know, Alhambra, the dice game or something, where yeah. it's like very similar gameplay, but you have dice instead of cards. But here it's actually, it's a new game that plays very differently. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's something I'm working on um, now since... Um, what is it now? October of November of last year, mm-hmm. and uh, we're looking at having it in Q3 on Kickstarter next year. Okay. And um, so, so that'll be sort of late summer to Essen time. Yeah, I'm, I'm, exactly. Presuming Essen actually happens, which they, which they, they, they more seem more likely now. They yeah, seem to be hopeful. I've got a hotel booked. Obviously, it must happen. Therefore, <laughs> <laughs> that's the curse, Roger. If you've booked a hotel, it's not happening. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, oh, yeah, it's probably, I don't know. Let's say it's happening. So anyhow, at Essen, <laughs> you can have a, a demo of it. But, um, so, um, as I said, it's, it's a card game where each, uh, hero has its sort of own unique deck. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> during the game, you, you play it uh, through different scenarios. So there are, it's structured around mini campaigns. Yeah. And each hero in the game has its own mini campaign. And mm-hmm. I call it a mini campaign because it, it's pretty short. Like, the, the campaigns I've done so far have, have been playable in around an hour and a half per player, more or less. Right. Okay. That's, that's the whole campaign playing. That's the that whole time. campaign right. pretty much. Right. So, okay. So four mm-hmm. players, maybe it takes you five hours or so. Mm-hmm. So it's more like an afternoon. If you played solo, you could probably play, potentially even play maybe two campaigns mm-hmm. in an evening. And, and is this a campaign that sort of, you know, a, a link, a series of games that are linked mechanically or is it a series of games that are linked by story? They're linked by story. Um, mm-hmm. and there are, uh, so each campaign will have certain things that are stressed mechanically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they will have sort of the hero that is connected to that campaign is sort of specifically well suited to, uh, to play in that campaign. So okay. if you have the hero Bastian and you play the Bastian campaign, mm. Bastian will very likely be the easiest hero to play, which of yeah. course is good but if you play theory, solo. You could play through it with a different character if you wanted to for some reason. Correct. Exactly. Um, and, um, and then di- between the sort of different parts of the campaign, you will usually have uh, the choice of, of, uh, of going through different branches. So, mm-hmm. You know, you, uh, you investigate something and then you have the choice of going to the forest or the church. And depending on which direction you go, your campaign will go a different path. So you can okay. go through the campaign several times mm-hmm. and some scenarios will be replayed and certain then will be able to, you will go down a different path if you want to. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's what, four heroes in the, in the box? Uh, so there is currently four, but yeah. uh, there may or may not be a potential stretch goals that unlock mm-hmm. another two. Sure. Uh, <laughs> You know. That's already sounding like you know a fair bit of replayability and variety. If that's four different campaigns with four yeah. different heroes, you could potentially take different heroes through each of those campaigns, and yeah. the campaigns themselves branch into different storylines. Exactly. And so, what I haven't uh, brought up yet, which I think is one of the probably most unique aspects of the game, mm-hmm. is how you acquire items. So there's no like real leveling in the game, in uh, just like there is not in, in Perdition's Mouth Abyssal Rift, mm-hmm. but rather there is um, th- there is the acquiring of items, and these items will will swap out cards in your deck. So right. the core, de- so each hero has a has a deck of twenty six cards, mm-hmm. and ten of those cards are tied directly to the hero and can never be replaced. Mm-hmm. So there are this this core 10. But then the other 16 are tied to different body parts. So Bastian will have three cards that are his head cards, 
three that are his body cards are right arm, left arm, and legs. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to equip, let's say, a broadsword, then you would remove all of the cards that are connected to his uh, right hand, Mm -hmm. and you would replace those with the broadsword cards. Mm-hmm. So once you're sort of equipped fully, you know, you have your steel helm, your chain mail, your tower shield, your broadsword, and your steel boots, then actually 16 of your original 26 cards will have been replaced with other cards. Mm. Right. And then certain items will have certain synergies. So if you play with a tower shield, for example, maybe you want to have a deck that is full of defense cards yeah. because the tower shield has effects that allows you to use defense cards in a more uh, beneficial manner. So. And that's sort of the way that you level up instead of having an actual progression, you know, like, well, the hero killed, uh, you know, three goblins and now suddenly he, he learned how to shoot flame balls with his yeah. eyes, you know, you, you have an actual <laughs> progression through them acquiring better items that allow them to sort of use their already. Sort of a, a more naturalistic progression. Yeah, which I think was always sort of an intention of the Perdition's Mouth series mm. to have something that is a little bit more gritty and realistic. Yeah, it was something that a lot of people, myself included, I think really appreciated, but also that a lot of people absolutely hated. Definitely controversial. Uh, If you look at the other big hit coming at the same time, Gloomhaven obviously has not only progression in the characters, but also progressions in sort of the world and what characters are available to Mm. you, right? So I think the progression part is something that, yeah, as you said, has been appreciated, but also a bit controversial and... I'm hoping yeah, this it's uh it's a symptom I think of the you know the sort of the trope of um Dungeon and Dragons over the years where yeah. people mm-hmm. and and I guess even more so on video RPG since that people expect to to level up fairly quickly you know they've gone yeah. and stabbed a goblin or stamped on a rat or whatever it is and yeah. suddenly they expect to be bigger and stronger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Although I think wasn't wasn't leveling in the original Dungeons and Dragons very slow? Uh yes, generally um Yeah. That's definitely accelerated over the years on third ed and fourth ed. Um, the, the expectation has pretty much become most sessions you'll go up a level at the end. Mm. Whereas, what, yeah, when, when I was doing this in, in the far distant days of the past, um, <laughs> you could go, you know, an adventure or two and you might have enough to gain a level. Yeah. So. I mean, as, yeah, I as it started, it, it was basically a war game, and, and if you were a level four fighter, that meant you, ha- you had the strength of four normal soldiers on, <laughs> on the battlefield. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I get expectations just change over time, right? But, um, mm. yeah, I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this will be something that sort of stays true to the, to the sort of the sentiment, uh, and design philosophy of the original Perdition's mm. Mouth while sort of bringing in a little bit more of that evolution and also sort of having um, a sort of a deck building because you can choose what items mm-hmm. you have, uh, which is then very simplified in a sense because I, I also play a lot of like um, like uh, customizable card games like Magic or, uh, you know, the cooperative living card mm-hmm. games and such. And mm-hmm. I think like what I see with a lot of people that play who are not hardcore card gamers, you know, it's like... The deck building is just not something most people enjoy. I, I think they just find it too daunting and time consuming. And I think, yeah, the deck construction definitely is something that puts people off. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah I've, I've certainly seen people talking about Arkham Horror and saying, "Yeah, I, I love the gameplay, but I'm just lost when it comes to what should I upgrade." Yeah, and I mean, what that's a I classic need? example where when that came out, everybody said, "Oh, it's so much better than Lord of the Rings is a card game because it doesn't have the same deck construction element." Yeah. And here I'm trying to sort of like just streamline that process at some point, like after the first, the, the first part of the, like the first scenario, 
you'll probably have one item mm-hmm. and you can choose to equip it or not. And that is your choice, right? And then, yeah. of course, at some point, choosing which items will, will be a little bit of a, uh, can be something that is, that is a little bit more uh, intricate. And also, mm-hmm. if you're playing with several people, it's more like maybe picking what, uh, which people or which uh, characters you bring into that scenario. But okay. So I'm hoping to make that process a little bit easier. Sure. I mean, I, yeah, I think that sounds interesting. I think this, this sort of micro-campaign idea is exciting as well. As somebody that, you know, I, I'm drawn to the idea of campaigns and storytelling games. Yeah. But over the years, I've found myself playing them less and less just because yeah. of the amount of time and overhead that comes with doing that. Yeah. Uh, no, somebody I... that can leave a game set up on a table somewhere, that, that's fine for them that they can do that. <laughs> but anybody that's got to yeah. pack it away after they finish playing, it's, it's a completely different story. Yeah, I remember I, uh, I, I always shipped that to you now, but Dark Souls was something I, mm. I played. Uh, and I, yeah, yeah I, thanks for that. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> well, thank you. We, we did the trade, so I didn't just <laughs> give it to you. Uh, <laughs> um, which, which I enjoyed a lot. I, I mm. probably played something like 30 times, but like, I felt it was almost unplayable if you played it with a group because like one, one session took so long that you mm. could almost never finish it. And, uh, that's why I sort of liked it solo when I knew I could have it set up on the table, I would probably yeah. play a game over two days. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, even one game of that just with one player takes a long time. Yeah, yeah, it does, it does. Yeah, and there, that's sort of something like I was very cognizant of when I started with it, with my own game. It's like, okay, mm. I want there to be some sort of campaign structure because I think that's the, the best way to facilitate this sort of a... Um, of a deck construction system with with uh, with items replacing your cards because I didn't mm-hmm. want that to happen mid scenario like I wanted there to be time in between, uh, but I think every scenario just has to be be played that quickly that you can actually play a full campaign in one sitting and then mm-hmm. if you want to then continue on to the next one you just take a note on the sort of a, uh, there will be some sort of campaign sheet there. Um, that that tells you what what items you have and how many wounds say each hero has taken, mm-hmm. and uh, and then you you can just continue on right and then you can do sort of one full campaign in one sitting and yeah and then move on and then you could also start just with with simple setup in the middle of uh, you know start a different of these mini campaigns with very simple setup just pick like one or mm-hmm. two items and then you say okay now I start from here I have these items because then it's sort of difficulty wise to scale I'm powerful enough and then you can sort of start. Uh, mid campaign in a sense as well. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. It's, uh, you know, I'm excited about the flexibility of the system and the, the shortness of it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about it too. So glad to yeah. hear that. Good. Okay, well, I think we've probably been talking for quite some time now. <laughs> yeah, probably about time to wrap it up. Yeah, I, uh, I've said everything I had to say, uh, and a little bit more. <laughs> good. Yeah. Thank you for talking to us. And, uh, yeah. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Nicholas. It's, it's been good for me to have that conversation with you about uh, the process you went through as well. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. Good. And uh, thank you for being such a gracious host, Roger. I know <laughs> <Yeah>. you've been <laughs> listening a lot, but... Uh... Yeah, well, yeah, that, that's the thing. I, I haven't had this kind of direct involvement in board game design, so for me, it, it's very yeah. much a learning experience and to see see what I can get out of it. Yeah, but it's always interesting to hear like the difference in uh, in different uh, sort of areas of a very mm. similar business, right? Because coming from the RPG scene, my understanding is that things do work very differently, but obviously there are certain similarities as well. No? Yeah.
So that was episode two of More Games Than Time. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us or suggest other things we should talk about, uh, leave a message. There's a, there's a link in the show notes to the forum, or just get in touch with us other ways if you know us in other places. Oh, thank you very much for listening to us, folks. 